everybody, and welcome to the Poetry Space. Today, in episode 32, we're going to be looking at meter. I am excited about this for a slightly different reason than normal, which is this is definitely a topic that I don't know nearly as much about as I want to know, which I guess, to be fair, is true about everything in poetry, but perhaps even more so with meter, where I know I have a lot to learn. I've learned a lot in the last week, but I've learned enough to know that I've only scratched the surface. So, hi, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I hear you're a bit under the weather. Are you feeling okay? I am a bit under the weather. I do have a fever. I'm also drinking coffee. So we'll see how this goes. Well, maybe you should switch to tea for one episode. That ship has sailed, Green. You're not here to make me tea. <laughs> I need drinking this coffee for the episode, like it or not. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully you're enjoying some coffee, too, since you're not sick yet. So you don't have any I reason. I definitely to am. And I'm looking forward to being sick starting Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> starting Saturday. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to do this space, though, with Meter. It's been a really good excuse for me to learn something and learn more about something that I feel honestly kind of guilty not knowing more about. Yeah, well, I've always loved meter, um, and it, it is something I wish, I, I say this over and over again, I wish there were more metrical poems submitted to Rattle and published in journals. You know, there are little phases where where metrical poetry is published more frequently, and uh, then, but, but it doesn't come up very often. Like the new formalist era, the certain, you know, the able muse and things do a great job of um, sharing metrical poetry, but I wish there were more of it, so it's good to talk about yeah, it definitely will be. And did you have a specific poem that you wanted to start out with today for reading? It better be in meter. Otherwise, we'd be off to a very bad start. Yeah, we'd be in trouble if not. This is uh, this is the first poem where I really loved the meter. Uh, and it was, uh, I think I mentioned before, uh, my grandma gave me a book of Robert Frost poems after uh, my, my first poem I loved was uh, Wallace Stevens, The Snowman. And I was talking about that and my grandma gave me this book of Robert Frost poems. And the first poem that I ever really loved the meter was To Earthward just sort of a hymn-like, um, it's a trimeter. And then the last line is dimeter every stanza. So little, little stanzas, you can put it up there. Katie's doing that right now. But this is To Earthward by Robert Frost. Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. And once that seemed too much, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of, was it musk from hidden grapevine springs downhill at dusk? I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. I crave strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now no joy but lacks salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard in grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth as rough to all my length. But it's uh, frost to earthward. And I bet right there that uh, in that first, I, I posted just the first two stanzas because there's so much into it. But I love that um, that enjambment and that jump to the stanza from, you know, that you had those end stopped rhymes. I love it. Love it. The lips was touch as sweet as I could bear. And once that seemed too much, but then it's, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. And it's that, the, the rhythm of that, that trimeter and then, uh, and then broken across the line where I lived on air. There's something where like the, my love of language just like took off hearing that little bit of poetry, that little leap from one stand to the next. So uh, it's always been a, f a favorite poem of mine. 
Yeah, it's really beautiful. And so I think that given my newfound knowledge, I could say that the start of that poem, so it's mostly in iambic, but it starts off um, with its lift, which is a trochee, right? So love at, with the emphasis on love, um, which I learned also that trochee is, um, comes from um, running, you know, the etymology is that it comes from running. And so that gives us that sense of leaping into the poem and then leaping, and then we sit back a little bit more um, for the iambic pentameter, if I am correct, Timothy Green. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you are, to be honest, because I'm terrible with all these names. I can't keep track of the different forms of metrical feet. I still, for the life of me, don't know why. I mean, it's a it's a trochee and then an iam, which makes it a coriam. But like, why point that out? I don't understand the, the reasons why there's all these Greek words. It's Greek to me. Um, and I, every time I, I can pretend to talk about stuff, but I have to look up the, the list of glossary of terms every time because I can't keep them straight. But I do love the sounds and the way that it pulls language through. And one of the things I could mention, too, is that, you know, I read that poem first when I was probably 16 years old or something. And I, I could read that. I didn't look at it as I was reading and I just know the poem because one of the things that, you know, through the oral tradition that we've had for 100,000 years um, the rhyme and meter are the two things that help us remember things. That was the whole point of poetry. That's why poetry developed. And so, you know, all these years later, I read the poem like maybe once a year and um, I never forget it because of the rhyme and the meter and, and the meter in particular. Um, that, that rhythm is something that we attach ourselves to. It makes our mind more bodily, like we move ourselves with a, with a meter too. And that's really where poetry comes from is this ancient sense of um, rhythm of language being a store of memory, the first digital technology, as Sasha Stiles likes to say. Yeah, that's definitely very true. And I think, um, you know, looking at overarching with meter, what I was thinking about the, a lot this week, and forewarning, this is when my, my poker metaphor is going to rear its ugly head. I am sorry to everyone who doesn't play poker. But for me, um, as a professional poker player, you often hear about people who are um, feel-based players, which means using their intuition and like they don't care about the math and, and whatever. And then there are mathematical-based players. Now, this is not too surprising that the players that really win, um, you know, used to get away before poker players became significantly better in the last 20 years with just being feel-based. But ultimately, um, you know, I am very much a math-based player. Um, but when you get so good at the math, it becomes intuitive. And then, you know, people will think you're an intuitive, you know, feel-based player when in fact you're actually just the math is so ingrained in you. And to carry that metaphor over, uh, what it has me thinking about is that right now as a poet where I am not, you know, extremely established in meter, I can't just pick up and say, this is why I'm doing this. What I'm doing is, is maybe limiting myself somewhat, you know, where if I get further into meter and learn the meter, that's kind of like the math behind why I feel like what I'm doing is working when it is working. And therefore meter is sort of like the math behind it. And so uh, in order to do that, I took a poem that I wrote recently and I, I tried to scan it, which is difficult and a slow process for me. Um, like Tim, I know you did with one of your own poems and I scanned it and actually the part that I felt was off, it turned out um, I was able to kind of fix once I actually looked more mathematically, so to speak, um, at the meter. So I think that that's something that's like my main reason for getting super into meter. And, and I'm going to continue to read these books. I didn't manage to finish in one week. A lot of people recommended me great books um, is that I think it will make me a better poet, even if I continue to primarily write in reverse. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, the number one advice people give for somebody who wants to get better at poetry is to read, 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 you know? And the reason why that is, it's like, if you were to get better at poker, it's play, 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 right? And then learn all the, the math behind the different hands so that it becomes intuitive eventually, you know? And so reading, what you're really doing is you're tuning your ear to the music of human speech and English specifically right now. And you're becoming a way that you can intuit out um, those musical structures that we find pleasing. And I think that, that the reason why maybe, um, you know, early on poets are, it's really tough to read uh, what they write is because they don't have an ear for, for this. And even if you look at um, in the critique of the week that I do every Friday, um, a lot of times I'll say, um, you know, I, I'm reading this and there's something missing right here. Like I can underline the spot where it goes, but dump, but dump. And then you need a, but dump, but dump, but dump. And it's going to explain the poem and you skipped it. Or something. I mean, everybody who's listened has heard me say stuff like that, because you can feel within the rhythms of the language where something is missing or something went wrong or you're you're went off the rails. And uh, and even, um, you know, we have this sort of free verse idea, but but a meter is so much a part of how we speak and how we write and, and poetry itself that there's still a meter hidden in so many things. And when it's off, we can hear it when we when our ears are tuned to hear. Yeah, that's very well said. And too, with poker, with me not to go too much into it, but when I actually became a better player was when I was studying, when I wasn't playing and I was really looking at the math or all these various programs um, to do that and really studying the math for intensive weird spots. And it's kind of the same as really breaking down a poem after the fact. You know, I used to say that playing poker was the test and, and writing the poem is maybe the test of, of your whole comprehension of it, but breaking it down and looking at it from a left brain level, I think is, is so helpful to see what's working. So let's see, Joe Barca has his hand up and we'd love to hear from you, Joe. How are you doing today? Great. Well, I'm afraid of this hour as well because meter is not my strength. But having said that, I mean, one of the things that people have taught me about writing poetry, and I would say I'm a page poet, is that you need to read your poems out loud, even if you don't intend to read them to the world so you can hear them. Um, and, and I also wanted to mention, and some of you know Alexis Sears, she read one of my poems and she picked out a line and she says, Joe, that's perfect iambic pentameter. And I'm thinking, I had no idea I was writing that when I did it. I forget the term you used, Katie, uh, for poker players who are like purely intuitive, but I feel like that's what I am, but I'm dying to become a mathematician like yourself. So just a few thoughts, Katie. Well, as always, Joe, we are on the same page as page poets. <laughs> so I can definitely relate to that. One thing that's been interesting in this process as I've been reading more meter, um, first of all, I, I literally am dreaming um, with dialogue and iambic pentameter at this point. So maybe I've gone too far um, with studying it. But also something that's been really interesting to me is uh, with my daughters, what I do is I read a lot of kids books. And of course, those are very famously written um, in, with a lot of meter. And I've noticed that my younger daughter, Charlotte, who's three and a half, she's definitely way more drawn uh, to the metered books and, and to the poems that, uh, I'm sorry, to the, to the ones that read like poems because they're metered. Um, and not just like uh, Dr. Seuss, which Dr. Seuss is, um, let's see, I think it's anapestic trimeter is mainly what he writes. And I know it's anapestic for sure, um, but you can really hear it. And it's hard if you are reading that to go from that to writing a poem, like it comes out Dr. Seussy. Yeah, well, that's how we acquired language, you know, the, the whole sit down with our kid and read. Um, that's how we learn to speak is by uh, is used through those nursery rhymes. And there's a reason why we say, you know, that, that poems uh, become too sing songy 
when when the reader is too regular. And that's because they sound like nursery rhymes. And nursery rhymes are the way that we acquire the, the, the memory and start to build those brain structures that are preloaded through, you know, 100,000 years of evolution. And, um, and, and it's, it's just a, it's a great thing to be able to, to do that. Like it's so hardwired inside of us. Um, I, and I wonder, you know, there's something too about the way that metered poems feel like they click together at the end. Um, and I, I posted this for Rattle just now, another sign. I think I'm going to read this if you don't mind, Katie. Um, Cause I was trying to remember what I was thinking of and this was it. And this is a Stephen Kessler sonnet. It's called Any Hack Can Crank Out 100 Sonnets. I left it to the comment if anyone wants to look at it on the space itself. Um, um, any hack can crank out 100 sonnets if he has to. All you have to do is set up your metronome and start typing, taking diction from the day's small gifts. Whatever presents itself in the street or dredges itself up from memory or dreams itself out of your transcribing hand. It's an insidious form because it's almost easy, leading you by the wrist through rules and rhythms as old as the English language, translated down the ages and idioms, transformed by time and driven by dying breaths. It gives you a false sense of what you meant when the closing couplet clinches your argument. And, and that last couplet is that feeling, actually, that, that I just love in a formal poetry poem that you never get in um, you know, a kind of free verse. There's a sense that the thing is actually complete that like the two sides of the mathematical equation add up. And, and there's a sense of sort of incompleteness to, to free verse poetry because you don't have this pattern established to be fulfilled at the end. Um, and so a poem doesn't feel as sort of sure of itself unless it's in meter in an interesting way. So I'm curious what people have to say because most people are not formal poets anymore. Do you have that sense too um, of, of a poem being sort of, um, I don't know, hardened down into a diamond by the sense of the meter and the sense of the completeness that comes from that? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, the sense is like when, whenever I finish, and it's part of why, you know, sonnets are my favorite form. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be metered, but for a metered sonnet, particularly a self-referential one, which is perhaps the best kind, uh, when it ends, my sense is just like, I just want to go, oh, like it just, there's such a, like a feeling of completeness, like you're talking about that comes uh, through that repetition. And it's part of what makes me love, love kids books too. Like we're talking about with, you know, I read the cat in the hat until I am blue in the face for Charlotte. And sometimes like, you know, she'll like get bored halfway through and I'm like, no, I'm finishing this. You cannot leave this unsaid. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I'm sure you've noticed this too, you know, reading so many books for the last few years, but modern newer children's books are terrible to read they're actually like hard to read because the meter is so bad like the people who are writing them no longer have a sense of what any kind of form of poetry is and so they're these clunky ugly sentences that just don't make you i mean i can't imagine them wanting to make a kid want to read or want to speak you know whereas dr seuss you just want to say those phrases over and over again because they feel good in your mouth there's a way that they roll around that we're attuned to them biologically um, and, and there's a beauty to it. And it's just so missing because we're losing a sense of, of what poetry actually is. Yeah, that's very true. And the ones that, that have come out, like, I think that they, they rely just too much on, on pictures, which like the funny thing about that is the static images just, I mean, that's really hard to compete with any show, you know, today too. 
So it's just like really fighting a losing battle when they're like that. And it's part of why, you know, so many of the books from when I was little are still the books that are like the best sellers in kids books. Yeah, it's just, it's a real shame. You know, I, I wish uh, that the writers of children's books would, you know, tune into uh, music because they don't have it right now. Yeah, one thing that I will mention really quickly that was a book that was written in meter, I believe, um, that was really popular that came out in the last few years. It's called Room on the Broom uh, by Julia Donaldson. And it has great lines like, is there room on the broom for a cat like me? You know, and things like that, where it just sticks in your head. And then every year when it's Halloween time, you're thrilled to read it. So it really does just roll on in your head through years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and that's the whole, again, that's the whole point, you know, I mean, we for 80,000 years, humans had no ability to write anything down, no way of storytelling, other than, you know, fixing narrative into the form of the music and the rhythms of, of a language. And, and so, you know, making something that's memorable, uh, if you're not using those tools that we evolved to, to acquire and appreciate, uh, something's really missing. I, I hope I don't feel like a like I hate free verse because free verse is fine too. It's sort of um, you know focusing on the, the rhythm of the speech more than the 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 regularity. Um, you know, there's there's still patterns inside a good poem even if it's not a regular pattern. But um, but but I just I just love a poem if it has regularity and form. Yeah, I've got to confess, I was um, listening this morning, I'd already watched it, but to your interview with Rena Espelot on the Rattlecast, it was episode 53, in case anyone wants to check it out, because it's really a great episode. Um, but she called herself an ear poet. And that really made sense to me. It was really impressive, because it's completely the opposite of how I personally write. Um, and she said that she hears the drumbeat in her head before the words. And that was just fascinating to me that she like she composes the first draft of of the poem she's doing actually in her head because she she's hearing this drumbeat rhythm and she hears that and then the words kind of fill in, which is absolutely fascinating. And she's uh, one of my absolute favorite favorite poets, not only as a formalist, but just period. Um, she's particularly just such a master of sonnets, which is also her favorite form. Yeah, and that's something else, too. You know, we, we talk a lot about the way that. Um, to make art, you have to quiet your uh, your right brain, your kind of monkey mind that has a very focused um, sense of of what you're looking at, and that that narrow range of of understanding, and open up your right brain, which is the holistic sort of self that that side of you that sees around you that evolved to avoid being eaten by predators, and and to do that, um, so many people when they become formal poets, it's the it's the meter and that that sense of rhythm that quiets the mind and then lets the surprising things come out. And so you can write things that you didn't know you knew. And it's almost like the, it is like a marching beat that pulls up surprise. And, and that's how it works for people like A.E. Stallings or Rena Espeyat. They all talk about that. They're about how hard it is to, to write something um, in free verse that uh, because they don't have that sense of, of where to go with it, of, that, of, of tuning out enough so you can let your subconscious speak. And, why do you think for them that that's, you know, that that happens, which is very interesting to me coming from poetry in such a different way. Do you think it's that, you know, they both, they read a lot of that kind of poetry when they were younger, or I, I know that you would be speculating somewhat because I don't think you totally reached that point um, in the interviews you did, but do you think that that's just like an inherent difference or do you think that that's something that can be learned? Like if I continue to seek out metrical poetry, could I eventually possibly approach a poem that way? 
Oh yeah, I definitely think so. You know, I think that's you know, for the various reasons we we hear about why people um, you know fall in love with poetry, and so often it's because they wrote a poem that meant something to somebody, and they got a little pat on the back, and they got a little dopamine reward. They felt good about themselves. So they did it again, and and you, you go down these little roads and avenues as a writer, um, and and some people just they fall in love with a, with formal verse with of something, whether it's uh, you know Frost or Neruda or something, and then they start to write that. And that's what gets rewarded, and that's the path they go down. And then, um, you know, as Elizabeth Bishop said, what we need for art is the same thing necessary for its creation, and that is a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration. And that self-forgetful concentration can come in a lot of different ways, but for formalists, it ends up coming in focusing on the meter and having that to distract you from your, your willful will that pushes the poem into a place that you already know you're going and, and just doesn't work as, as an art form. And so I think, you know, the more you write and meter, the more, more that'll become the way that you do it. You know, other poets do it in revision. I think you, the way you write spontaneously and quickly, you're kind of a leap into meditation type poet right now. But, uh, but if you worked on a meter and focused on that for a while, you'd end up being, um, you know, somebody who uses the meter to, to pull up surprise. Um, and I think that's just the, the way we go. It's just a path. Well, what my goal is, is to be able to hear the drumbeat of a poem before I write it. Because right now, you know, I see an image or I see something to explore. And that's always, that's how I leap into it. But it is like, you know, I really love the idea of using meter, something you can hear to jump into that, you know, letting go state, the flow state, the subconscious, um, all of those words for what it requires to write a really good poem that actually explores something and goes somewhere. Which Dick Westheimer, I think, has a Wait, lot of experience. Let's, uh, with. I thought before we go to Dick, though, I think we should read a Rena poem while we were talking about Rena. Oh, that's true. We go to Dick. I'm hoping to read two Rena poems this hour, so we better get on with it. Yeah, do you want to start by reading here, which you published? Yeah, yeah, I liked here a lot. And, and I wanted to say, too, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, the image is what starts, sparks your poems, uh, that first image you see. For me, even if I'm writing uh, not in meter or any kind of form, it's still the, the music of the first phrase, I guess you could say. And that first phrase that comes to mind somehow, maybe inspired by an image, but maybe not, um, has its own music that ends up repeating. And sometimes it fits in a form and that's where the poem wants to go. And sometimes, you know, other non-regular aspects are what come out. But there's always, it's always the music. And then that this sort of the scaffolding that's building itself up is in that first sound and rhythm of the first line for me. So it's interesting to, to hear you, you talk about the image being first for you. Well, it's interesting because I think maybe that all that happened in me saying that was that I went further back. So it's like, I see something that inspires me and then the first line pops into my head. It's yeah, usually how it goes. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, let's see, let's do what we'll do here. This is Rena Espayat's poem here. And this is another one where the ending with the slowdown of the last couplet and the way it clicks home is just a great example of what rhythm and, and meter can do. This is another sonnet, it's here. Everything's here, unused but orderly, as if ready for use, a mint or two, his nail clipper, the little scissors he trimmed his mustache with, scribbled things to do, his watch, a neatly folded handkerchief that spills a scattering of change, the pen that leaked into his pocket now and then, I almost hear him now, don't touch, as if I were pilfering his tangled hearing aids. This snarl of keys, his red Swiss army knife, hiding its tiny arsenal of blades like legs tucked under. Glasses, wallet, wife, each item's here. Though useless as it is, I don't know why, except that it was his. 
And so that's a poem, a really tender, sad poem about um, Rena's um, husband who'd passed away. And that's here by Rena Espayat. And um, and the thing to, to point out in this poem too is the way that the the syntax varies so deeply, um, f- f- far away from the meter itself of each line. So you know all those um, semicolons in the middle of sentences, all those like full stops, um, you know one foot away from the end of a line, so you have to start over again. Like all those things are attention pushing against the meter, which make the poem uh, musically really beautiful. Yeah, that's really well said. It's a stunning poem. I also, I know this is not our enjambment space, but what a gorgeous use of enjambment. I think that that's something that too, as I have attempted to write, you know, strict meter poems um, this week too, I found that enjambment becomes a lot more difficult um, to do that because I have this sense of every line is just a complete thought, which I know is total amateur metrical poetry. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The main thing, if you're going to start writing in form, is to acknowledge that. And I think that's the reason why it's fallen out of favor is because we all associate, um, you know, meter with nursery rhymes. And so they feel childish. And, and you have to get away from that by using a lot of enjambment and by twisting the syntax across the meter in surprising ways that because that, you, you want to set up. I mean, we're we're. Um, you know, we're pattern recognition machines and, and very similar to large language models, um, but we do it across many domains. And, and so we're always looking in this reward system we have. We're looking to find the pattern. Then we're, we're happy when we see the pattern and notice it. So we get this little kick out of it. And then we, when we have to alter our, our pattern is we get another kick out of it as well. And so, um, so having that variation is what really matters as far as having it be rewarding within our dopamine, dopaminergic uh, reward system. So that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Too. And it's interesting you say kicking because on the Rattlecast, uh, Rena Espiat said that, you know, I think she was, you know, referring to this formal verse in general, not specifically just meter, but talking about being inside of a box and kicking at it and like, but not breaking it all the way. And of course, with meter, it is when the strict meter is broken slightly that it really becomes interesting, um, but it still has to be contained in order to hold that, that kind of interest, I think. Yeah, I mean, you think of it, I think I mentioned this on my Twitter thread, but you can think of the meter as a box, and then that allows you to push off, like, uh, there's a lot of sports, like, I know you play racquetball, Katie, you can push off the wall, you know, to go after a, a ball that's been hit the other way, that's kind of what meter is, it's like the the, the box you're in to play racquetball, and, uh, you know, you use it as sort of leverage to, to maneuver around within and, and have more force than you would otherwise. Yeah, and hopefully you don't screw up your knee like I did last winter when we played for the first time. <laughs> yeah, that that <laughs> okay. was legendary. It was a great dive, though. It really thank was. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm cool again. Thank you very much. All right, let's go ahead now and go to Dick Westheimer and hear how he's doing today and what his thoughts are. Well, first of all, I uh, want to play racquetball with you sometime. Um, let, let, let's start there. Um there's, there, there's a lot a lot to think about from what you all have raised. Uh, f- first, I wanted to talk about the children's books. And I think it's it, for me, it's not just children's books. My favorite books, sometimes children's, are full of um, meter that's pushed down right beneath the surface. I think the youngest book I, I can think of is, you know, like Goodnight Moon, which is not in strict meter, but it but it it's right there. But, but even books like Blueberries for Sal and some of these other young, young people's books, there's meter there. It's just sort of, it's, it's, um, 
it's it's not sing-songy and it still does you know it it fulfills the same the same role and same with adult books uh, well well-written adult books have a, have this sense of an underlying meter um uh, and so something both you and uh katie and tim said um, I often start off poems with sort of an idea or image, and then I use the music of what I'm writing to kind of subvert that and, and leave it behind and let the music then drive that forward. So it's sort of like a hybrid. Um, but then what I find is, is because I'm so rhythmically oriented that I have to go back in after a draft and kind of yank out some of the some of the sing-songiness or some of the drumbeat so you know it doesn't sound like uh you know like an army marching and have to have to you know consciously um do that i, I remember once tim at a rattle one of my first rattle casts uh you have a you have a nice open mic so you have a nice way of telling people what is good in their poem that i always took as okay what's missing and i remember a couple times you said oh the music in that is really nice and, you know, I was listening to it and thinking, huh, there's something else there that I want to be really nice. So so I've, I've worked on sort of um, subverting meter uh, in free verse a little bit, um, you know, not losing it, but making sure it, it is not sort of like this, uh, you know, uh, you talked about walls. I'll talk about, you know, bars of, you know, up and down bars of a jail cell. Um so I th I think that's it. I think that that um, I love the conversation. I and and I think what I would just sort of leave saying is that the, the meter is not just in the purview of formal poetry. That the, you know it's the meter of 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 folks' poems that I love that um, are ostensibly free verse and not. Um, um, you know, not strict meter, as you were talking about, Katie, you know, that it's broken a lot, subverted a lot, uh, that I love the most. Oh, I have Yeah, it's a good thing to, oh, yeah. yeah I had a, que I had a question for you, Tim. In the, um, in the, um, uh, the Frost poem that you read, um, he, and I wrote this in a note, said, what do you think about leaving out articles to make the meter work? Like in the Frost poem, he says, was it musk from hidden grapevines? And it, it feels like syntactically it should be, was it the musk from hidden uh, grapevines? And I'm wondering when you read, for instance, a rattle entry, and there have been some stripping of articles to make the meter work, um, how are you feeling about that? So lots of questions. Yeah, well, well, definitely. I think, you know, what we're trying to do is capture the natural music of speech. And so when we skip out articles, I think that's usually a detriment. I never thought of it as that, as that way in the, in the to earth word, though. Um, I mean, was it the musk would work? Maybe it's because I read it so long ago. It's just ingrained in me that that's what he says. And it's not natural. But to me, it sounds like a perfectly fine variant. And you'll very rarely see Frost do anything like that. Um, or Rena Piespa, of course. I know, you know she has that poem, um, you know, making fun of somebody who's rocking uh, the article. My favorite poem of hers. Yeah, it's a wonderful poem. And, uh, and I think definitely that the, the articles are a very important part of speech, way more important than, um, than we even are aware of, as um, James Pennebaker's research 
talks about in um, the secret lives of pronouns. I think that book is, but, but there's so much because they're, they're generated in a different area of the brain. There's a way that we're tuned in They're They're I think in Broca's area and we're tuned into that because it's a non-voluntary um, mode of speech, actually. Like it's, it's a less voluntary than uh, the frontal lobe where most speech is coming from. And so that's how we tune into whether or not someone's being honest for one thing is their, their article use. And, um, and so it's very important to keep, keep the speech feeling natural. If you want to sound authentic and honest, which I think we all do, that's sort of the heart of poetry is to get some kind of honest truth. And so I think it's really important to, to keep all those. Well, at some point you said today you were going to talk to him about this question that I had about masculinist, uh, if iambic um, beat is, has a masculinist over overlay. Is that something you'll get to? Yeah, um, I don't know. Should I talk about that now, Katie? It's a, it's a bit, yeah, I guess let's talk about that now. So I just interviewed um, Annie Finch for the winter issue of Rattle a couple of weeks ago. And she is the one, I, I'm not sure if she, I think she might be the one who put this forward in the first place um, in her book, uh, The Ghost of Meter, where her argument is that, um, you know, Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman were pushing against the sort of patriarchy of um, iambic pentameter. Um, and writing in um, not just free verse, but a lot of um, anapestic and um, dactylic verse, like hidden in there, even though we talk about it as free verse uh, poetry. And um, so there is this idea that, um, that that drum beat is a sort of a masculine energy. And, and she talks about that a lot in the interview. I think it's a really fascinating subject, but I disagree, you know, gently and, and with fondness, <laughs> but I disagree with that idea that, that that's a masculine and feminine, because I think what it is, I think the reason why iambics sort of won out, and iambic pentameter in particular, is because it's so related, it's rooted in the human body, as so many things are. And, um, you know, our heartbeat is iambic. It's ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. It's not, you know, ba-ba-bum, 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 unless you're having a problem. And then uh, for pentameter, we, the average human being at rest has uh, about 12 breaths per minute. And um, you know, we have about 60 heartbeats per minute. So that averages out into about five beats per breath. And so a line of iambic pentameter is like one breath and how many heartbeats are in a breath. And I think it's just a sort of coincidence that, you know, it was a patriarchal society that, you know, was dominating at the same time as iambic pentameter came to dominate poetry. Um, I think it's just a coincidence there. I don't think it's something that comes out of, um, you know, gender itself. Uh, but it is interesting to look at her explorations of other forms. And, and I, it makes me want to really write some like dactylic verse and things like that, uh, which she does. And she was talking in the interview about how it's so hard to find even examples because we're so locked into um, iambics that we almost forget that other forms of verse can exist where the iambic is not the dominate, dominant foot. Yeah, I would also, I agree with him on that subject too. Uh, Dick, I did look into that some because I was curious as well. And I, I just, I, I didn't find anything that was um, convincing to me on it. I would also say as a woman that has been pregnant and had a heartbeat inside me, I feel maybe like I as a woman own iambic even more than somebody who's not going to have a baby inside them can. But that's me. Yeah, it's very true. It's the first uh, it's the first sound we hear because we form in the womb of our mothers and we hear that heartbeat, too, you know, and so um, I think that that's why we're drawn to it. And I think the reason why it's won out and become the dominant, um, you know, form when we do have have metered verse 
is um, it's the one that's the strongest to us. And so as less and less people are writing in form, it becomes the sort of the one that we all gravitate toward because there's less of it. So it's like a scarcity that draws us to iambics. Uh, whereas when everybody was writing meter all the time, people were sort of more free to play with different varieties. And so that's why if you look at like Celtic verse or things like that, there's more, uh, more variety in, in which kind of meters they deploy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think we should go ahead and hear from this speaker that we haven't called on yet today, which is Kier Fabian, who has shared so much information about meter and knows so much and has written a bunch of articles that I've been looking at this week. And first, I want to thank you for helping enlighten me on this subject and all the links you shared. And I'd just be interested to know your overall thoughts about meter, how you got into into loving meter. Hi there. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess one of the reasons I... I'm so enthusiastic about poetry and poetic rhythm. Um, I'm I'm ADHD, and I, I, f I find when, for instance, I if I read a Shakespeare monologue at high speed, that immediately focuses me, focuses me. Um, that it, it's something that's, that's very valuable to me. Um, uh, you talk, talking earlier about some um, iambic pentameter uh, and and why that's uh, so much more um, why that's the predominant meter. Um, that's a, it has iambic pentameter uh, combines flexibility with uh, rhythmic tightness. So if, if the if the meter is any shorter, uh, it, it becomes very very song-like. If it's any longer, it tends to break down into component parts. So, for instance, if you, if you have um, uh, six beats, it tends to it tends to break down to two, into uh, two lines of trimming. So, de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. When it's four beats, get de dum 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 de dum. It's it's very repetitive, and it's very song-like, which has its own appeal, its own strength. Iambic pentameter. That there's a natural pause at the end of each line. De dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. De dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. The reason for that is, is actually um, as a default, it's an enlarged um, three-beat rhythm. We hear beats in, um, uh, we tend to hear beats in pairs and in pairs of pairs, uh, with the the first beat of each pair having primacy. So de dum 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 de dum. The iambic pentameter, you have. De dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. It says three, 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 this the first beat, middle beat, end beat. That are the primary beats. De dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. It's actually an enlarged three beat rhythm. Um, and and uh, so, so as because it's um, it's asymmetrical and it's three beats has a natural pause at the end of each line. Um, it has it has much more. Um, you can do a lot more with it. It has much more flexibility and it's much more speech-like. Let, yes. uh, let me jump in and say yeah. too, here because I was going to add uh, that, that what you're really describing is the reason why the Fibonacci sequence is found in nature yeah. so often. Uh, because it's a it's a it's a way of um, of self-assembling strengthfully. Mm -hmm. So adding on it to itself, you know, you get that one, two, uh, three, five. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you skip the four and the six in a Fibonacci sequence because that's a weakening. And so, you know, and, and when something's self-assembling, it's the way to contain sort of the most structural power within the most growth. And so, so there's a reason why that, that, that pentameter, you know, rises above yes. two. And it's because it fits in that natural yes. pattern that's part of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, talking about, uh, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting subject. Um, 
talking about um, um, keeping the meter and breaking the meter for expressive effect. Um, of course, that that's that's a, a really fascinating subject. Um, that's um, but uh, there there is um, there's more variation. Many people don't realize how much variation um, traditional um, iambic um, meter meter actually provides. Um, yes. Yeah. One one way in which I saw that was um, when I was looking at examples of that and like how it was yeah. used is that um, in a, mid a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is my favorite Shakespearean play, um, most of it is an iambic pentameter, a lot of it. But when it comes to the fairies and the fairies dialogue, it switches to a tropaic meter, which is you know gives it more of a lilting type. You know, I'm a fairy type of um, type of feeling. So it does switch, I think, more than people are aware of. I think we lost here, but uh, but it is. It's just there's so much to to talk about here with the various meters and and the different ways that to to approach writing. I wanted to talk about the um um the scansion and the way of diagramming it out. Maybe Kira will come back because oh there there's Kira's coming back. Welcome back, Kira. We're glad you made it back. I'm sorry you got rubbed. Yeah, somehow. Sorry, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask, would you be up for reading uh, the Gwendolyn Brooks yes. poem that you shared? Yeah. And then, if you give me one second, I'll just pin it to the top because you went through and did your scansion on it. Yes. So anybody that wants to look at that could look at that at the same time, and it's more of a contemporary sure. poem, obviously, than talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Carried her on protesting out the door. Kicks back the casket stand, but it can't hold her. That stuffed and satin aiming to enfold her, the lid's contrition nor the bolts before. Oh, oh, too much, too much, even now, surmise. She rises in the sunshine. There she goes, back to the bars she knew and the repose in love rooms and the things in people's eyes. Too vital and too squeaking, must emerge. Even now she does the snake hips with a hiss. Stops the bad wine across the shanton, talks of pregnancy, guitars and bridge work, walks and parks and rallies, comes happily on the verge of happiness, happily hysterics, is. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem. And, and, uh, and seeing it scanned out like that, um, there's certain conventions for scansion, but we don't learn that in any programs. Uh, you know, I, I talk to most people who've been through MFA programs and uh, it's very rare that you get, I happen to have a teacher, Robert Mezzi at USC for one semester who, uh, you know, believed that, that poetry had to be formal or else it wasn't poetry. So he taught us uh, a little bit of scansion, but it's something that I really feel is, is missing from, from, you know, we have so many MFA programs, so many creative writers, and, and it's just something that most people don't know how to do or even think about. Um, That's quite how right. did you, how did you learn, you have your own style a little bit that you use, um, how did yeah. you learn to do that? Was there a source, somebody who taught you, or a book, or anything like that? Uh, that my um, um, I, I I first picked up. Um, I first realized I actually knew nothing about scansion, though I thought I did. Uh, when when I came across um, uh, somebody's blog on the internet. Uh, so, uh, but then even then, and I kind of picked a bit more. That I knew there's something there's something missing from my comprehension. It wasn't it wasn't quite there, uh, and. Uh, I'm ADHD, so I'm an, I'm an obsessive. So when I get an interest in something, I, I go all in. So I, I, I research obsessively. And the, the book um, I found the most useful. Um, it's a very specialized, but very, um, 
extremely um, detailed book. Uh, it's um, The Strict Metrical Tradition. Um, by someone whose name I've forgotten, but it'll come back to me. I'll, 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 <laughs> my technical understanding of Misa is, is primarily based on reading his book. And it's become a, a little more nuanced here, here and there, but, there's a, but, the, the, but my base understanding is, is based, based on his book. What can you say about the purpose of, um, of scanning things say, out too? Because I... the Kettle Jones, that's, that's the name of the author. Purpose, yeah, so, because we—it was interesting in your comment thread. We were talking a little bit, and uh, and I suggested maybe a wave function to show all the variation. Yeah, you said yeah. it was too much, too much, and and it made yeah. me think about you know what is the purpose? Is it is it um, mm -hmm. uh, listening to the music in that detail is so valuable to be able to hear and see what's going on? So so for for a poet, um, you know, what is the level of detail that you should be scanning and thinking about things and and, and and what's the purpose? Like, why would you sit through? Why should we teach it? It feels to me like we should teach it in our classes. Yeah. And we well, don't. Yeah. And so so why should yeah. we? I guess that's how I want to phrase that question. It's, it's largely not taught because it's not, not very well understood. And also our, tradi our traditional um, approach to scansion or disyllabic foot division is, is very inadequate. It's very choppy. It, it chops the line up rather than actually, actually helping us to... Um, to hear the rhythm, to reveal the rhythm. So, so, if, um, so we, uh, the, the the purpose for me is is to reveal the, the 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 repeated rhythmic patterns that we actually hear. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to to compare. Um, you know, it's almost like it's it's something. You know, I say uh, that the poem on the page often is is like the sheet music for the actual oral presentation yes, of the musical exactly. speech yes, that you're giving. Exactly. And so, what yes. it strikes me is that um, you know, I play guitar a little bit, and you know, sometimes you can look up the chords of a song and you can play them, but then there's a tab that shows all the holds and pulls and, and oh, yeah. you know, slides and, and which, which strings you're muting. And so you can play the song so much more accurately with an actual guitar tab than just having the chord sheet and having to figure it out yourself on the fly. And that's what it seems like notating this does. And then yeah. doing that to know what's, what a musician's actually doing, a musician of speech. Um, helps you become a better musician. I mean, if I didn't yeah. see those chord charts for how to play, you know, certain songs, I couldn't yeah. do those moves in my own, you know, styling of the song. And so it's so important to understand what's actually going on within the language. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, Kier, do you write poetry yourself? Like when you're looking and, and looking for these rhythms to be revealed, are you saying both that it, you know, helps your further enjoyment of reading poetry in addition to do you write poetry? Uh, I don't really write it. No, I I, I think um, uh, I I've never really had the inspiration or the patience, uh, and, and I, I I I I kind of want that immediate engagement. Uh, if I want that, there, there's so much poetry I want, I want to read, and, and uh, so it's I've, I've never really felt the inspiration to 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 um uh to devote time to to write it. No, as yet. Maybe one day I will, but yeah. And then how long have you been doing this with uh, scanning lines and getting really into it? And who are your favorite contemporary formalist poets? Um, I, oh, how long ago was, I, it's, it's about um, maybe maybe six years ago or more that, that, that I, 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 I first um, started developing my, 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 own approach, my own approach to Nisa. Um, contempor uh, contemporary poets. Um, 
by contemporary, you, you mean, mean living poets or, or, 20th, or like 20th century poets or... Yeah, let's say living poets. <laughs> living poets. I, I don't know. I, I, mean, I, 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 t- I tend to, I tend to read sort of, sort of um, uh, yeah, the, 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 I, I don't read as much contemporary poetry, as it, if, if I'm honest. As I'm well, um, maybe then we can yeah. get one for you to be the next, because I think that, Tim, you shared some Wendy Vitalock on your thread, and I would love to hear you read some of her amazing poetry and make Kier have a favorite new poet, possibly. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> That'd be good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. So, so one thing I want to point out, that, like the, uh, what Wendy does, which is so fun, is she uses form to play. And that's one of the things I think too that's missing. I think there's several things that are that are missing. I just saw an article too that uh, AM Jester posted about, um, you know, about light verse being a thing of the past and and sort of um, poetry as sort of political cartoons that that kind of type thing, and um, and just a sense of like I'm having fun with a poem is kind of lost too as we move away from from meter and we don't have those songs and everything. It becomes a little more serious, you know. And the, the two complaints I get from people that are not already in the poetry club, so to speak, and aren't writing and submitting poems all, all the time anyway, is that, you know, the poems don't have enough rhyme and meter and that they're too dark. You know, those are the things I hear for 20 years and under. I've heard that over and over again. And Wendy Vidalock is someone who really shifts and pushes against that because she's so playful with what she does. And uh, so here's a poem. This is in a uh, diameter. So it's very sing-songy. Violent, a very short poem, but then at the end, um, um, shifts that so it's only um, one foot for the second to last line, and then three for the last, which, which sort of gives you this sense of transition at the very end of this tiny little poem. And this is the question of ever, the question ever on my tongue, whether flustered in love, whether hawk or morning dove, whether silk or boxing glove, is what are you so afraid of? And so that that what it makes you stop on that what, and um, and then the, the whole poem shifts like a little, uh, like a volta kind of, and um, and so so I love the way she plays with that, and she sets up these sort of sing songy type uh, poems in in a little short section that she completely twists around what she's doing in order to play with it, which is a lot of fun, and and one of the things you can do with meter. Yeah, that's definitely a great point, and. Her poems too, you know, that same sense we were talking about at the beginning of the space with the the like awe and the feeling of completeness and wholeness, kind of like you just ate like a really good warm cookie that you baked yourself. Like that's how I feel when I when I read Wendy Vitalock too. Yeah, for sure. And and she does it so much and so well. Um and it's just a lot of fun. And it's always like we talked about, it's always the breaking of our expectations and, and so setting up expectation and breaking it, which is a lot of fun. Um what else? Let's read a couple more poems. What do you want? What else do you want to do, Katie? I want to read the other Wendy Vitalock because I'm staring at it and hoping that you read it. <laughs> you know, well, if you're staring at it, why don't you read it? How about that? Okay, I'll read it. That's fair. Uh, so I already pinned it to the top because I was hoping we would get to both, but it's going to be Tim's tweet, even though I'm going to be the one stealing it to read, I guess. <laughs> so this was published. So this was our, looks like it was also, I didn't know this, but a Rattle Poetry Prize finalist in 2013, so 10 years ago. So this is Wendy Vitalock of you. You've been the wolf, you've been the bear, you were the grass when I was air, the hush of the lake, eyes and lips, a shyness at my fingertips, a motion that knew wind to slow, the forest where I always go. And now you are the windowsill, I rest my elbows on until the night grows black and I can't see these silhouettes 
of you and me. It's just a great poem. And Tim got rugged too. Everybody's getting rugged this space. I think the, the Twitter gods are mad that we're uncovering the importance of meter. <laughs> yeah, while I was gone, I'm back. It, it just, uh, the phone rang and it knocked me off um, as a speaker for some reason. I don't know. But anyway, I assumed you read that poem beautifully, Katie, because you were like a third of the way through and then it caught me up or something. I don't know. But I, I assume you read it. It good. was honestly perfect. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It went okay. It went all right there. Yeah, another great example, though, of what Wendy does. And, and you know, there's so many poets that do wonderful things with meter and i think um i don't know i just wonder what people think um you know joe's here and uh, dick's here and and what do you think as people who write traditionally you know in in free verse and in sort of a free form what do you think when you come across a poem that's in meter is it something that you um um is it you something you aspire more to do do you have that same sense that it's more of a poem than the general you know i get that comment like i said for the general public a lot do you do you it does it make you want to do it more or does it make you does it seem annoying you know because I, I do get some poets who don't like ryan mirror at all and, and they find it that the repetition of it to be uh i don't know upsetting or something yeah go ahead though you beat dick with having your hand up so you're no, no i was just gonna say that i and you know i you know you all know i'm a bit obsessed with alexis sears but i'm envious a bit i mean i want to take courses in sonnets and sonnet redoubles and all these words i don't even understand yet and i just think it's like anything else if you do a, a sonnet and it's really poorly done and the rhymes are lame it's a horrible thing but if you do it masterfully i just think it's a work of art so m one of my goals is to be able to become really strong with form at some point i'm not there but i also think i need to find good mentors and teachers to help me get there so those are my thoughts okay yeah, and Dick, what about you? Uh, do you uh, do you aspire to write a formal poem? Um, very much, um, and my my uh, obviously, you know, my issue is is not not having read poems all my life. It's not ingrained in me, but the other, or you know, in innate in me. Um, but the other um, piece, my part of my practice is I would say probably half my poems I try to rewrite. To just try to rewrite. When I say rewrite, I mean some things get completely thrown out in meter or some other form, and just as an exercise. And sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. Mostly not. So yeah, I'm constantly toying with it to see how it changes what I'm writing. And I've not yet gotten to the point where you've seen one. Yeah, well, to follow up on that, I mean, why do you think that we don't like? Is it is it a, a laziness? Is it just that we haven't been exposed to it? I, I really the the contrast between the demand and the the supply is sort of stark because people do, you know, in general, really appreciate well done formal poems, and yet nobody's writing them. And people say, you know, every you know, only three of these poems are in any kind of form in an issue of Rattle. I'm like, well, you know, that's that's a higher percentage than we're in the submissions. So uh, why do you think it is that we're, we don't do it? But with so many people taking MFA programs, going to workshops, um, you know, why is there so little emphasis on it? Well, part of it is uh, I tried to pick up the violin about five years ago after never playing it. And the guys in my bluegrass group said, the only people who can play violin or fiddle to the point where anybody can stand it are people who have been doing it since they were five and I don't know if five is the case, but I think my favorite 
formal poets are ones who grew up hearing it or reading it to themselves. And so for folks, you know, old dogs like me, all I can do is just keep reading and aspiring and then, you know, integrating some of these formal aspects of meter and rhyme into free poems until someday, maybe when I'm 103, uh, I'll, you know, I'll get a good, convincing metered sonnet. But I, I love the I love the exploration. But I think I think the people who are best at it are ones whose parents or heard them or it's part of their culture. It's just part of who they were uh, growing up. I, I, well, I would say, I would say that we were all reading foreign poems when we were five. <laughs> That's part of the thing. We just stopped. But one, I do have a theory too that I think uh, the, you know, that we don't go to church anymore is a, is a big reason. We don't hear that sort of hymn verse in the, in the gospels and, and all that, uh, all that stuff um, and, and the songs, you know, we don't do that. There's not as much sense of oration because we don't go to church like we used to. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we're not as, as, it seems a little harder maybe. I, I also think that part of it is, you know, just looking at this, how overwhelming the information can be. And somebody can take, you know, they can scribble a sentence on a piece of paper and claim it's a free verse poem. Um, but objectively, when there's, you know, there's no meter or no formal structure, you know, you can't claim like, oh, this is a ballad, you know, and you're factually wrong. So I think that that's off-putting, to be honest, because people are lazy. And it <laughs> doesn't mean there aren't amazing free verse poems, but it, it takes um, it takes more of more left brain effort, I think, at least from my perspective and where I'm coming from on it. Yeah, well, you said it, I didn't, but I think you're right. And there's just so much less of an admission price on the claim of being a poet when you uh, are writing a free verse poem. Yeah, let's see. Kier has has their hand up. Uh, let's hear from him, and then um, and then I guess say quickly because we're we're pretty much out of time. Oh, okay, we're out of time. Okay, um, a couple of things I'm going to say, but okay, we're out of time. So. Um... I'm just going to mention another sonnet which plays off against metrical expectations, traditional expectations. That's um, a sonnet called Sonnet by Elizabeth Bishop. I'll just read it. Caught the bubble in the spirit level, a creature divided and the compass needle, wobbling and wavering, undecided. Freed the broken thermometer's mercury running away and the rainbow bird from the narrow bevel of the empty mirror flying wherever it feels like gay. So that, that's, uh, it confounds expectations on, on two levels. On, on, one, on the one hand, it's very, um, it's, it's, it's very unconventional as a sonnet, because it's a diameter sonnet with uh, the, the beats um, freely placed, lots of, lots of anapests, lots, lots of um, opening the beat and ending on tail. Um, but uh, but it's 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 also it's also it's also very split, very tight. To, to, to two beats to, to each to each line. It it couldn't be it, it couldn't be be any 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 more rigid in in that, in that respect. Um, and and you notice at the end it, it ends on um, two neat irons. It feels like gay. That's the only line in the whole sonnet that that ends that ends ends on has two neat irons. Yeah, I think that is the bottom line of why, you know, meter works so well is to set up that expectation. It just all goes back to that. Set up the expectation and then, you know, mix it up in a surprising way. It's a really deep level. It adds a, a sort of a bodily level to the mystery, you know, and um, I think that's really central to what good formal poetry does. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that um, we've come to over the hour, so I should probably go ahead soon and uh, pick the last poem to read, though I need a second to pin it. Tim, so 
Okay. <laughs> well, Lizzie Pinnock, can you tell us what poem it is? Because I don't even know. That's fair. Okay. Well, I just pinned it. So nailed it. That was like super fast pinning. It was like an in real life pinning. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Good job. Thank you very much. <laughs> I feel like it's very appropriate that we close out with one more arena as a lot of sonnet here. And this poem I want to bring up too, because I was, it was a great excuse to get to look back at her poems, you know, getting ready for the space and everything. And this one in particular, I wanted to say that I read it, um, you know, I just read it without saying it out loud. And I thought, well, you know, I've read it before and I, I really liked the poem. But then because I thought that I would be possibly closing it out, I read it out loud and it hit me so much more emotionally when I read it out loud in a way that just wasn't possible um, from from reading just the words on the page, which I think points to the immense strength of meter more so than really anything is, is you know, really embodying the, the poet's perspective, as you like to say, Tim, um, through reading this poem. Yeah, definitely, Katie. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Thanks. I just wanted a sip of water, so I was hoping that you would say that. <laughs> you were like, well, all right. All right. <laughs> okay, so this is Rena Esplat's Changeling. I want to tell myself she is not you, this sullen woman wearing mama's eyes, all wrong, whose every gesture brings untrue and yet familiar. In your harsh disguise, I sometimes need to find you, sometimes fear I will if I look closely into her. I want to tell myself you are not here, trapped in this parody of what you were, but love was never safe. It lives on danger, finds what can't be found by any other power on earth or over it. This stranger is you, is all the you there is. My mother, whose gentler face is gone beyond recall, and I must love you so, or not at all. Yeah, another great poem, and you hear the, the way the meter also makes the rhyme click home at the end, too. That, that whole thing, that we're sort of writing to a finite destination when we're writing in form, and, and that makes the, the poetry all the more beautiful in that sense of, of um, you know, surprise, but inevitability at the same time. Yeah, my, my favorite part of the poem besides the ending, which is always going to be the case, I guess, with, with a, a really good sonnet, it's always the ending with the Volta having taken the poem somewhere, um, somewhere big, is, is the all wrong in the third sentence, um, where I believe it's in iambic until the all wrong, which is, I believe, a spondee, so it cuts off the iambic and goes all wrong. So it's all wrong in terms of staying with the meter that was there before and shifting it. And so it's all wrong, multiple levels, which I, I think is really brilliant. So yeah, there's, a, there's another thing we haven't even mentioned, but there's a way that you do this when you're writing where the, it happens naturally in the same way that like, you know, you can disclose certain things you're thinking by accidentally saying certain words, like those kind of um, slippages of speech, those, um, you know, those ways that certain things come out the way we like, if we're lying, we kind of like shake our head, even though we're saying something positive. There's a way that the body sort of speaks and knows what's going on. And I bet that that wasn't a conscious decision by Rena. It's just something that came out from her body and her voice and her lungs is that she was writing the poem. Yeah, because she heard the beats first, as we learned from listening to the Rattlecast, where she said that she hears the beats first, but she probably heard the dumb, dumb, the too stressed beats there. And then all wrong um, makes sense as the complete you know, embodiment of, of those sounds. So really interesting. And I, I want to really thank everybody for sharing their opinions today. Kira also for joining us for the first time and taking me to school with all you know about, about meter for sure. I've learned a lot from you. So thank you. I looked up the book that you recommended. Unfortunately, it's like a $100 textbook. It looks very cool, though. 
but <laughs> there's definitely a lot of a lot of resources out there for everybody who wants them. And Tim, do you remember what we're going to talk about next week? Because I think it was your idea. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to do prompt poems next week because you are the series editor for the prompt poem of the month at uh, rattle.com, and you're going to be picking it um, before next Thursday. So, and we'll we'll hopefully post the poem on Thursday. So uh, then you can share your experience choosing poems as an editor for the first time. And we'll talk about, you know, how poetry prompts call up interesting things and, and make you go surprising places and why they're valuable. It's also, of course, the fall issue of Rattle. So a lot of reasons to talk about prompts and the way they generate poems and uh, to talk about, talk with a series editor firsthand. It'll be a lot of fun too. Well, thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. I've already started reading the poems because, you know, that's what you have to do if you want to get a response to people extremely fast, which is always my goal in doing this. And I'm really excited to, uh, to talk more about that next week. Yeah, well, that's why we pay you big bucks. So <laughs> you got to put you to work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to you guys so much for joining us today. It was really fun. I feel like I learned a lot about meter. And most importantly, I'm excited to learn even more about it. And I, I do feel like I'm still going to be dreaming in iambic tonight. I feel like that's going to be going on for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. Let's see some, let's see some metered sounds from you. I like that. Yeah, I wrote one, but it wasn't good enough to share for this space, but that tells you how that's going. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, so much. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.